America's Oldies But Goodies, Episode 9. Boys and girls, this is Tom Garrett from the Classic Sport. I had a great time doing Dick's show, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. The greatest music from the greatest decade, and it's all right here on America's Oldies But Goodies. What more could you ask for? There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. The end of every day. There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow, and tomorrow's just a dream. Away. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another there encounter with some groovy moments from the past. We're visiting the '60s with host Dick Scapatoni, whose pop group Harper's Bazaar had a hit record back then called "Feeling Groovy." He'll be talking with our guests about a decade that shaped a whole generation, not only with the most magnificent music ever made, but also the politics, protests, and pretty much everything that happened in the swing in 60s. So, Dick, who's on today's show? Thank you, John. It's pretty hard to get past spooky, stormy, and traces without knowing that you're listening to the Classics 4 during the 60s when they were touring the country as Dennis Yost in the Classics 4. Each one of those three songs sold over a million records. Some of you may know that Dennis died in 1968 at the age of 65, and his longtime friend, Tom Garrett, found himself center stage taking over the vocals. It's a story that could only grow up in the rock and roll 60s, and we'll talk with Tom Garrett about that band, the Classics Four, who are still touring in just a minute. For retro and vintage merchandise, you'll find some fabulous buys at Dick's website, americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. Autograph records, tiki mugs, golf memorabilia, even a Paul McCartney signed album cover. Check it out at americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. By the way, you can listen to every episode of our show there too. That's americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. You know, lately I've had so many opportunities to reminisce with some of the real icons from the 60s. And even though Tom Garrett wasn't center stage back in the heyday of the Classics 4, he's got not only wonderful memories, but nowadays he's got an important mission to bring that fabulous music, not just to fans our age, but the younger generation too. Today, we're going to hear about some of those memories and some of the well-known stars that Tom has worked with over the years and what the Classics Four are up to now. Such a pleasure to have you on today, Tom. Welcome to the show. 
Well, thanks, Dick. I appreciate it, and, and thanks for having me on. Yes. Well, uh, I think we've got so much to talk about Classics 4. Of course, it had hit after hit, and it was got kind of crazy after a while. But and before we even get into that, let's just start with you. Let's go way back. If you want to go back even before high school, it's up to you. But talk about how you came up through the ranks, as it were, and uh, through the uh, the time frame of the 60s, and then we'll get more into today. So how did it all begin? Well, I, I started out as a small child. Okay. I, I believe that. that. The first, that's kind of where it started, right there. <laughs> Sorry, I could, it was too easy. I couldn't resist. <laughs> yes, um, right. <laughs> but, uh, well, you know, I, I, I grew up in St. Louis, and... Um, and so, uh, like every kid, you know, not every kid, but most kids, I, I got in the school band and wanted to play trumpet. That seemed like a cool instrument to me. And it only had three keys as opposed to a saxophone that I thought was cool but had a lot of keys. Yeah. I thought, heck, I'm pretty clumsy. Yeah, I'll mess that thing up real quick. So three keys I could probably handle. Yeah. So I got uh, got into music in, in school like so many kids do and really not understanding that in, I think, uh, when you start in the band, maybe fourth grade, whatever it was, fourth or fifth grade, really without any clue that what I was starting, that little travel, that little road I was starting to travel at that time, was going to probably be the biggest decision of my life. Wow. Yeah. And at that point, not really a clue. You're not even thinking about that. No, not really. I, I Truthfully, uh, I hate, hate to say this out loud, um, but I, you know, I never was a, a, a big guy. I'm a smaller guy, and I always was. And uh, at that time, the way the scheduling was, band was the same time as P.E. Okay. So if you're in band, you didn't have to go to P.E. Right, okay. Well, that sounded like a bonus to me. Sure. So that was, a, that was another uh, great uh, part of it that I think was an unintended uh, perk for, uh, for me. Anyway, all through school, I uh, played horn, left high school uh, because of financial situations and coming from a very poor home family. You know, I, I left high school uh, like a lot of kids did and lied about my age and got a job. Okay. So that, that, that was really my beginning and a little time in the military, always in bands, though. And in this band, that, you know, I've been, I've been in bands that lasted. 30 years almost, and been in bands that didn't last 30 minutes. Yeah, and you went into the military? I joined the Air Force because being, truthfully, a high school dropout, uh, I was pretty sure that uh, my number would pop up. Uh, the draft was still very much in force uh, at that time. Even though I had dropped out of high school, as long as I could pass the uh, appropriate tests, the Air Force would take so I, I joined the Air Force. It was, a, it was a great experience. I was a policeman in the Air Force and a, and a security and a dog handler. I had a, I had a, had a dog. Worked canine. And did you play any music in, in not in a military band, but did you, did you have a band while you were in the Air Force? I didn't at all. I tried out for the Air Force band Oh. when I was stationed in Texas. Well, let's just say I didn't get a call back. Okay. All right. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. I, I didn't get a call back. So I was, you know, like everybody, I think, you know, I was away from music, uh, back in it, uh, you know, kind of bounced in and around a little bit. Uh, it was a, it's been a great experience for me. I, I got started, uh, you know, my my first real band where somebody gave me money at the end of the night was a, a soul band in St. Louis, kind of R and B, uh, and we were playing some top forty, and so we were learning all the stuff that was on the hot radio station at the time. You know, 66, 67, 68, mm-hmm. playing, and I realized, wow, this is pretty fun. The, the, the horn section, you know, we were back there, and we figured a good night was any night that the trumpet and the trombone didn't bang into each other while yep. we were trying to do these <laughs> dance steps, you know. We had no rhythm. Yeah, uh, James Brown-type tunes, or? Oh, yeah, James Brown, Sam, Sam and Dave. Oh, uh, yes, Sam and Dave. A lot of anything uh, with horns. At that time, that band had three lead singers. Uh, which was kind of cool. One guy that did uh, a lot of solo stuff, and then two guys that were doing all all the uh, duet stuff. They were doing, you know, the Everly Brothers and uh, and some Righteous Brothers and and all that stuff. So it was a it was a it was a very cool band. It was the uh, thirteen piece. Oh band. boy, yeah. 
that's a management uh, a fiasco, I would think, with that many bodies trying to keep everybody together. Well, it, it, it was. Ultimately, you know, it, it, it didn't stay together. Some guys were better than others, and some guys moved on and, and kind of moved up and tried to do other things. It's just pretty typical of, of, of bands. You know, they, people bounce in and bounce out. So I got out, and I really wanted to try the singing thing. And so when I left that band, I kind of put the horn down and started to try and focus on on trying to be a singer. Yeah. How did did it happen? I mean, well, it, it did. You know, I, I got in a I got in a little group, and I, at that time in St. Louis, there was a the hot band in St. Louis was Bob Cuban and the Inmen. They had a big hit record in 1966 called The Cheater. The Cheater, yes. The uh, lead singer for that group was a guy named Walter Scott, and I had gotten to know Walter a little bit. And, you know, he's I don't know 22, 23, or whatever. I was 15. Uh, he was very kind and. And uh, encouraging, you know, hey, you know, kind of, hey, if you want to be a singer, you got to try and do that. So I looked up to him. He's the first famous person I ever met. So with a little encouragement from him and a and a little bit of cockiness on my part, thinking, heck, I can do this. I nose around. I found a band that was looking for a singer. Got together with these uh, four guys, and we put together a little group, and you know, played some of the local team dances and stuff like that. I was the youngest kid in the band, and so we were a little had to be careful where we played it because of age, you know. And and that really, after that, I was hooked. Well, now, when you're saying because of age, are you talking about a liquor license type stuff or? Yeah, you know, some places wouldn't hire you if you weren't, well, at least 18 and really 21. And, you know, so I'm here I am at 15 or 16. I might have I might have told people I was 18, possibly. <laughs> so we still had to be a little careful. But, we, you know, we played some and, uh, and played some private parties and, uh, one of the guys was very active. His parents were very active at a church. So we did a lot of things for a couple of uh, different churches. You know, we played little events for them. You know, they'd have a picnic event, that kind of stuff, which today, when you think about that, sounds funny. But, you know, you go back to the 60s, 66, 67, 68, picnics were a big thing. You know, church get-togethers were a big thing. Mm-hmm. A lot of churches had, you know, a nice yard, and out in the yard of the church was picnic tables and maybe a swing set and they'd have the what they used to call them uh, little bazaars or whatever you know yeah. we played a lot of that stuff and i don't know about fifteen dollars a piece or whatever it was. okay yes i remember those days too i i can remember going back to uh, i think the total paid to the band was 25 and there was four of us so each of us got six bucks but you know as you're talking yeah. about uh, those uh, socials and things like that. I'm wondering if that might have been very typical of the Midwest, whereas in California, I don't know, I think maybe there was... We didn't spend as much time doing that. We broke away essentially from the parents. We were at the beach. Of course, I lived in a beach town, but, you know, we were surfing all the time. And so I'm, I have a feeling it was more prevalent in your neck of the woods, probably than it was, at least on the West Coast. I don't know what was going on on the East Coast back in the 60s. And that's probably very true. It probably was very regional, because while you were surfing, we were shoveling snow. <laughs> okay, yeah. All right. Whole different whole different, uh, whole different way to make a couple of bucks was you know, go to the neighbor and knock sure. on the door and say, hey, yeah. can, I, can I do your driveway for $2? You know? <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, uh, actually, Santa Cruz trying to remember we may have seen snow one morning one time in all the years i've been here so yeah different ball game absolutely absolutely let me bump this to a different slot okay what do you consider to be among your most notable successes well for me i was fortunate uh, in 1980 i started my own group called the spec we were a 60s cover band. It was, a 60, it was a Spectre's all-gold rock and roll show. Prided ourselves on doing cover songs and making them sound like the band, you know, whoever that band was. Uh, six guys in the band, a total of five keyboards. One guy played three, another guy stacked two. Uh, guitar player, bass player, uh, all six people in the band could sing. Nice harmonies. Uh, that was uh, what I did in the music business for 28 years. So it, it was a pretty successful run. We opened, we were the opening act for many, many, many groups out of the, out of the 60s, uh, groups like the Letterman and 
Gary Puckett and uh, Mark Lindsay and uh, Gary Lewis and the Playboys, the Turtles, a whole uh, mishmash of uh, the Mamas and Papas, even, of groups from the 60s. And so I got quite uh, indoctrination at it. To, uh, to a lot of those folks during that period of time. You know what? As you're saying that, it occurs to me, let's drop this in here, because the original lead singer, as I recall, was Dennis Yost of the Classics Four. He was the one that actually came through Spooky, Stormy, Traces, and all of those. But you were friends of his for uh, actually, I think, quite a long time, weren't you? Yeah, Dennis and I knew each other. We became close friends towards the end. That That's kind of how that came about. But all there's only been two lead singers in the history of the Classics Four. The group started in 1965 as the Classics. Emil Stuccio had a, uh, still has a group called the Classics, and they had a big hit record uh, called Till Then. Oh, yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Till Then, my love will be. Mm-hmm. So, and Emil... Mills people said, you know, well, wait a minute, we were already in the classes. So the, the rough story, the quick story is there were four guys in the group at that time, and so they became ultimately the Classics Four. Okay. So Dennis was the lead vocalist of the Classics Four from its inception in 1966, or 1965, rather, until he passed that torch to me roughly 10 years ago, and he passed away then in, in 2008. So you had to do some real work on vocals, or or were you singing in your own voice? You know, I think when we were doing the cover band, you know, I kind of tried to emulate the style of whoever that song was, you know. Sure. I had no problem, no problem going, <laughs> Okay, you got it, yeah. I was happy to do that. But uh, when the decision was made that, indeed, Dennis wanted me to take his place with the Classics Four, it was not about trying to sound like Dennis. He had probably one of the most distinctive voices ever. Mm-hmm. I would have failed miserably trying to copy it. I didn't feel like that that was the thing to do, so I sing in my own voice. Anytime you learn songs that were done by somebody else, you can't help you pick up little little tidbits, oh, you know, sure. little uh, yeah. intonation mm-hmm. or... Uh, and stuff, and I catch myself now in the song Spooky. You know, the line is, Love is kind of crazy with a spooky little girl like you, yeah. you, like mm-hmm. that, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, unintentionally, I hear myself do that. I kind of slide that you. It just, it's just the way it works out. Yeah, I would think it's almost impossible to, unless you had a completely different tempo and a completely different arrangement. Then, maybe. But if you're doing anything relatively near the original song, you're going to pick up some... I, I, don't, I could never get around it. I mean, I can reflect all the way back to when we were singing Beatles songs. Well, we sang them exactly like the Beatles did, so... Sure. Well, the, the biggest thing is people, people don't want to... If, if, if you're a cover band and you're covering the Beatles or whoever, the people want to hear... They want to hear... The song, the way that they remember it. Yeah. Maybe you don't sound exactly like the singer or the guitar player doesn't play just like the guitar player. But, you know, they don't want to hear some weird rendition of it, especially with Classic Score, when we are the continuation of the original group with these great records in, in the history of the, of the band. We play those songs as close to the, to the original recordings as possible. Nobody wants to hear how I think, oh, gee, wouldn't it have been cool if they'd have done uh, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Spooky as a, as a hard rock uh, hairband song. Or sure, yeah, right. Yeah, I think artists can have a tendency over a period of time. I know in my case with Harper's, one of the things I did many years later, I had gone back into the studio, was I did a different version of Feeling Groovy. And it was really pretty different from the the version that we had the hit with. After I listened to it, after it was done, the recording's done, and we put all the time into mixing it and making it work, it it just didn't work. It it didn't work. Now, for the public listening, it would have worked even worse than it didn't work for me. So, uh, (laughs) yeah, you you can't change. There's some things you just can't change. Yeah, and because people don't want it to change. Right. They, They just... 
they don't. They don't. They don't want uh, if they're listening to uh, you know uh, feeling groovy. You know, they like that. Slow down. You move too fast. Yeah. Slow down. Slow down. You know, got to hear. Not uh, yeah. Not the uh, slow down. You move too fast. No, 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 no. Yeah, not going to work at all. No. I, yeah. I think I hurt my throat too. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Time to visit the Music Factory for a coffee break. Take a listen to this, and we'll return in just a moment. Everybody's checking out all the bodies that are cruising down the track tonight. There's a guy looking out for a girl and another looking for a fight. They call it Beach Street Saturday Night. Everybody's on the Beach Street Saturday Night. Come on, rock and roll the Beach Street Saturday Night. Come on, catch the show at Beach Street Saturday Night. Hey! A lot of pretty little things will be a strutting and a flirting around here tonight. If you're looking for things, put on a button down shirt and get your hair cut right. You know, I know you've worked with a lot of pretty memorable people. Tell us about some of them that you worked with and that you, you're you working with today or that you worked with in the past that made uh, a real impression on you. I think uh, the Letterman certainly uh, have been great friends of mine for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um with my old group, you know, we were we were hired to to be the opener, and I always tell the story that we were the opening band that they didn't want. Huh? Uh, a, a promoter, you know, brought, was bringing Letterman and hired us to be the opening group, and so we were on stage, sound checking and getting ready. And the three guys from the Letterman, Tony and Donovan, and uh, I think Ernie Pontier was with the Letterman at that time. They come strolling in, and they kind of look over and paraphrasing. Tony says the promoter. Who are they? And he says, oh, that's your opening act. And Tony said, well, we don't use an opening act. Huh? Tony Vitale is the founding member of the Letterman. Uh, you know, the promoter said, comes over and tells me what happened. And uh, I said, well, I'll take my check and we'll go. Yeah. Well, you are, you know, I'm getting paid. Huh? And he said, oh, no, 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 he's going he's gonna to let you perform. And uh, kind of, Tony was very kind. He said, you know, you guys are here. You might as well play. Sure. And so that started a friendship uh, uh, that was in 1986 or 87. Uh, that started a friendship. I remember they were going to perform at the White House for the president the next day. Wow. Which was pretty cool. Yeah. That started a friendship back then, 86, 87. I think it was 87, actually. And Tony and I have been friends ever since. Okay. Certainly, they're they're probably pretty high on my list, but uh, Gary Puckett is a friend, uh, uh, one of the coolest people. And to me, you know, because we're all fans. I, I know you have people that you're more of a fan of than somebody else. We all do. And for me, the epitome of wow was always the Righteous Brothers. Oh, yeah. Bill Medley and Bobby Hackett. One of the coolest things for me today is that Bill Medley knows my name. If, you know, I, I, I saw Bill, there, there, the, the, he's working in Harris in Vegas, and we were doing a show in Vegas. And so I, we, we went over to, the, to Harris to see his show. And after the show, we were backstage, and you know, I walk in and he goes, "Tommy, how you doing?" Oh, Bill Medley knows my name. Yeah, right. Hey, that. Uh huh. That's neat. <laughs> and and it's, it sounds funny, but to me, you know, that was that's like one of the coolest things that uh, somebody of that caliber, you know, is I can honestly say is, is a friend of mine. That's that is uh, just so cool to me, and I, I'll never get over. I don't care what what you do. I don't think we ever get tired or get over the opportunities to meet our radio heroes. Oh, sure. And, yeah, Righteous Brothers. Certainly, they are. Uh, they were a couple of my radio heroes. Not the only ones, but they were They were pretty darn high up on the list. Yeah. I can remember a time when I was in high school, we used to do, I lived in Northern California, Santa Cruz, and we used to do our summer surfing trip every year, and I always insisted that we stop at Disneyland because I was a Disneyland buff. So we're there one night somewhere near the the space rocket, and there's a stage there. And they've got a really good band playing, and there's horns and everything else. And they introduced these two guys that we had never heard of. They came on stage, 
And they said they're going to do their new record, which was Little Latin Loopy Lou. And it was the Righteous Brothers, of course, completely blew us away. We came back home to Santa Cruz at the end of that week and went to the store, record store, ordered the record. The record store people didn't know who they were either, but they got the record. And I think for the rest of that school year, every dance, we played Little Latin Loopy Lou probably five or ten times each dance monster group absolute monster and the whole phil specter thing and the sound yeah so i i I hear you and it's it's really cool that you're working with him right it's uh it was great we just uh uh, he was just on the cruise with us uh two years ago when i say cruise ocean cruise and uh had a chance to hang out with him and just 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 very very nice guy uh super super nice guy to everybody one of those people in there's all kinds of personalities in, in any business mm-hmm. uh, but bill is uh bill is uh, just genuinely a, a good guy to everybody is he going back out on the road now with someone else he's working with a new partner the guy's name is bucky heard and um, bill spent a good amount of time working in branson and bucky was a uh, entertainer in branson and so uh when bill decided to uh put the righteous brothers name back out there. You know, he toured for many years after Bobby's passing as Bill Medley of the Righteous Brothers. Mm-hmm. Or Righteous Brother. Mm-hmm. No you know, no S. Righteous right. Brother, Bill Medley. And so now him and Bucky are working as the Righteous Brothers. Uh, they sound awesome. Mm. Um, Bucky can Bucky can sing the notes. They, they sound great together. They've got a new record out called uh, Love Wins All. Okay. And... Um, that, that Bill wrote, so they're so they're doing great and working in Harris and and uh, out on the road as well. So okay. I think he's having a pretty good time. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. That's really neat. Perhaps having the time of his life. So, yeah, yeah, may may well be now at our age. You know that that we're able to do this. You're younger than me, but I'm 71, and the fact that we're still cooking and still out there is, I think, it's a good thing. I have no plan of slowing down. I've had a couple of challenges with. I think almost slowed me down, but uh, moved beyond all that stuff and kept, uh, we're still rocking and rolling. Well, you know, just even talking about all the various successes, um, most of us know that uh, life is not all the better roses. If you have one, give us your best failure story. It can be either personally or with the band. That would have to be the time that uh, we recorded a song, uh, uh, the Spectres recorded a song that was written by Mike Krinsky, who... Uh, wrote the song The Cheater back yeah. in, in 1966, a song called Just You Wait, beautiful love song. We recorded it. We were doing it live. In fact, I, I used that song to kind of get my wife's attention and let her know that, uh, you know, I was I was the right guy for her. <laughs> okay, and, uh, yeah. True story. Uh, uh, the song has a great line. It says, Just You Wait, and I will show you what a man is meant to be. Just You Wait, and you will see just what you really mean to me. It's a great song. Yeah. I love it. It's a hit song for somebody. Apparently not me, but for somebody it's a hit okay, song. Okay, yeah. But we, we recorded it and decided, well, let's see if we can do anything with it. And so Mel Friedman produced that song originally in 1967 in St. Louis for Walter Scott, the originally the singer from Bob Cuban and the Inman. And it, it got good airplay and, and did pretty well on the, the hot station in, K- in St. Louis at that time, which was KXOK. But outside of the outside of the area, I, I don't think the song went anywhere. And so I, I played it, sent it to Mel. He listened to it. He got back with me and said, I really like the way you guys are doing this song. It sounds good. It's like the original, but it's a little different. I, I, I like it. I like it a lot, and I'm going to try and do something with it for you. And so, I don't know, about a month went by, and he got back to me, and he said, listen, I've got some interest I need some more. I need some more information from you. I need your latest promo photo. I need bio, et cetera, et cetera. So, of course, I'm telling the guys in the band, hey, you know, here's what's going on. There's a record label interested in us. And so we shoot all this stuff to St. Louis. A couple weeks, three weeks go by. He said, well, he calls me and he said, I've got uh, good news and bad news. I said, well, give me the good news. I might as well be happy for a minute. (laughs) He said, they really like the song. They really think you guys sound great. I said, okay. Yeah. What's the what's the bad news? He said, they saw your picture and they think you're too old. Oh, jeez. 
Oh, brother. Unbelievable. I can't even imagine hearing that. That would be beyond irritating. <laughs> well, let's see. I would have been. That was in the 1992, so I would have been uh, 41. So, uh, you know, I'm sure that some record exec uh, who is, who knows, 25 years old. Yeah. Looked at that and said, ah, these old guys, you know, they're, uh, they're, they're, they're past it. Yeah. And uh, so that was disappointment, failure, whatever you want to call that. Uh, that was a, that was a pretty big one. That was enough to make you kind of go, eh, maybe I, maybe I should go, uh, uh pump gas someplace. Or oh, something. geez. But, uh, yeah. You know, yeah. you, you get over it in the Well, it looks like a door slamming, but uh, mm-hmm. you, you wait through the time period and then how well you're doing today. So, But you didn't necessarily know that at the time. So, No, you never know what, so what's going to happen next. One of the things, well, we've kind of already talked about it, and I don't even know if we need to go there. I was going to ask you if you sound like Dennis, but no, you don't. That's neither here nor there. Did you have somebody uh, in your past that really sparked your whole musical thing? I mean, if you said you were to say who influenced you, who, who would it be? Was there someone? Oh, absolutely. A band director named uh, Bob Helmer, uh, who's a junior high high school band director uh, for the school district I, I, I lived in. He was, uh, when I was learning, when I was coming up as a trumpet player, he was a cool guy. He'd been a road musician, so he played with Harry James and, and Tommy Dorsey. Oh, yeah. So he'd actually been out pounding the pounding the concrete, you know, on the road. When other bands were playing, you know, John Philip Sousa Martians, uh, we were playing Herb Albert and Tijuana Brass. Okay, yeah. The Ventures. We were playing the cool rock and roll stuff, and and I sat. Uh, anybody that's a musician, you know, will know. I sat first chair, first trumpet. Of course, I played all the high melody. I was I was the melody guy, and so getting to play. Uh, a taste of honey and and uh, Tijuana Taxi and all those songs from Herb Albert was uh, awesome and, and Mr. Helmer was definitely I think probably my big my most popular teacher the one that has always stuck with me and I spoke to him on my 40th birthday just very quickly I called him and tracked down his phone number and his wife answered the phone and I I asked for Mr. Helmer and she kind of chuckled <laughs> and she said. Bob, she said, Bob, it's for you. And he got on the phone, and uh, I said, uh, you know, Mr. Helmer, uh, uh, my name's, you know, Tom, blah, blah, blah. And he says, don't tell me. Wait a second. Let me think for a second. Let me think about it for a second. Skinny little kid, jet black hair, played trumpet. Huh? And I said, yes, sir. And we talked for about a half hour. I, I learned at that time that he was ill and, and uh, actually passed away not very long after that. But I was so thankful that I had the opportunity to make that phone call and and thank him for helping me along a journey that led me to be on this radio show today. Sure, yeah. It, 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 was, it was awesome. So without a doubt, I, I credit him for pushing me along that journey. Well, that's really neat that you had someone like that. And it kind of makes you think about, Teachers in general, how many teachers have the good fortune to get calls later on in life from students that they really identified with? And that's, that is unique. I, I can think in my own case, probably, maybe my music teacher, Sister Rose Therese, I went to a Catholic school, and she would let us do whatever we wanted to do within basic guidelines but she really promoted music and singing and choir. And one of the few nuns I think I ever made any kind of connection with, and it sounds like in your case he may well have been one of the more important teacher connections when you're going through school. I think so. Uh, in fact, I know so, and I, I think part of that is the fact that he had not always been a teacher, that he had been out and had other life experience. You know, it's not... He didn't go to college and say, well, I'm going to get a job at a school district and I'm going to do this. You know, he, he went out on the road and he banged around for years. He could play, like most uh, band or music teachers, he could play about everything in the room. Some other, better than others, he was uh, predominantly uh, a sax player. 
but he could he could blow horn, uh, you name it. And so I think the fact that he had this life experience and he told stories about it, you know, which was so cool. He talked about playing behind Frank Sinatra and people like that. So pretty, pretty cool stuff. Yeah. I see by the old clock on the wall, it's time for a quick break. We'll be back in less than a minute. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. I mean the bare necessities are Mother Nature's recipes that bring the bare necessities of life. Wherever I wander, wherever I roam, I couldn't be found of my big home. The bees are buzzing in the tree to make some honey just for me. When you look under the rocks and plants and take a glance at the fancy ants, then maybe try a few. The bare necessities of life will come to you. They'll come to you. You know, for listeners in my time frame, I was born in 1945. We can remember back in the day when we were as fit as a fiddle. Not necessarily (laughs) really fit, but I spent a lot of time in the water surfing. So uh, now, as aging baby boomers, we probably no longer look much like Jack LaLanne. If you're up for talking about it, how's your health nowadays? I'm actually happy to talk about it. Yeah. Which may sound a little corny. My health today, as, as you and I are on the, con- on the telephone right now, uh, is excellent. Yeah. I'm, in, I'm in great health. This time last year, that was not the case. Uh, mm. uh, this time last year, I was uh, uh, preparing to start treatment for tonsillar cancer. Oh. I was diagnosed with tonsillar cancer on March 30th of last year uh, at Mayo Clinic. And for a singer to find out, that, you know, first of all, to find out you have cancer is unbelievable. There's no... I, I had a mass uh, in my throat and a mass in my neck uh, and a lymph node. So you know that's not good. I mean, you kind of know what it is. But knowing that and having the doctors sit across from you and say, well, Tom, it's definitely cancer. Yeah. You can't prepare yourself, at least I couldn't, yeah. for that word. Even though I knew it was coming, it was different than having it said to me. Now it's real. Yeah. And now I have to figure out what to do next. And so um, I was diagnosed with tonsillar cancer. They wanted to do surgery. I was at Mayo Clinic, the best people on the planet, by, by most uh, uh, people's uh, opinion. Mm-hmm. And, and mine, truly, at the time, um, we uh, talked about what to, what to do and what to expect. They talked about that after surgery there was a chance that I would need a feeding tube for the rest of my life. Oh, boy. Uh, there was a chance that I would be left with a uh, noticeable, if not severe, speech impediment, and certainly that I was done uh, as a singer. Gee whiz, yeah. And by the way, we hope you're having a good day. No. That's not, that's oh, not true, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, here are all these things. That was a Friday. Uh, it was a Friday having that conversation, and they wanted me to stay in Rochester, Minnesota, and have the surgery on Monday. I mean, like right now. Mm-hmm. And I was booked to do a show in Jackson, Tennessee. There's a radio station that does a, but they kind of, uh, they call it their caravan of stars. And they, they bring in lead singers and they bring studio musicians from Nashville. So they just bring in the lead singers from different bands. And I had that show booked and I told the doctor, I said, I, I, I'm booked on a show April 23rd in Jackson, Tennessee. If I do that show, is it going to affect my life? Will it, you know, is it going to jeopardize my life if I wait to do this surgery? Because you're telling me that I'm done. And if I'm done, I'll, I have a chance to do one more. Mm-hmm. And I want to do it. Yeah. And uh, he said, oh, no, no. He said, because if you were at home, you'd see your local doctor. He'd say, you need surgery. He'd refer you to a surgeon. The surgeon would do this and do that and schedule a, you know, whatever. He said, you'd be a month anyway. He said, but I, I wouldn't wait beyond that. And I said, okay, so we set the surgery for April 25th, 2016 at Mayo Clinic. Mm-hmm. And my wife and I came home. I felt great. I had no symptoms. I had a little lump in my neck. 
but no pain, no other symptoms. So once we got home, I started researching non-surgical treatments for my cancer. And I found something uh, called proton radiation, proton treatment. The only 16 centers in the world, in the United States, I'm sorry, 16 centers in the United States, at the time did proton treatment. And only a few of them did it for head neck cancer. And one of them, I was fortunate enough, was in the, at Northwestern University in Chicago. And I lived about halfway between St. Louis and Chicago in central Illinois. And so I reached out to them right away because I thought, I, well, maybe this is a viable option. Maybe it's not. But I have to find out. And so that started a whole different journey, uh, it, researching proton treatment. My, my wife chuckled. She got home that day. She's a nurse, and she was out busy that day. And when she got home, I said, let me tell you what I found. So I'm telling her all this stuff, all this technical stuff about proton radiation and proton treatment and how it's less invasive and how it has less side effects and it does this and it does that. And she said, wow, how much have you been reading? I said, everything I could find. Yeah. Absolutely every article I could find about it. Yeah. Uh, I tried to, to, to gain all that knowledge. Sorry, I get going on this. And ultimately, uh, I met with the doctors at Northwestern. The side effects were not going to be a walk in the park. But uh, when we got all done, went back, I talked to the doctors at Mayo's. Uh, they specifically said, don't do that treatment. Really? So I called a guy in Chicago, and I say, you know, listen, here's, here's a guy at, at Mayo's, very smart doctor at Mayo's, saying, Tom, I think that's the wrong treatment. Do not do that treatment. And here are you, smart guy in Chicago, saying, hey, I can take care of this for you. And here's me, a little <laughs> dummy sitting in Central Illinois. Yeah. How am I supposed to know what to do? How does a guy like me know what the right decision is? And he said, let me just say this. The doctor at Mayo Clinic has never done what I do. They don't offer this treatment. So while he knows about it, I don't know with having never actually done it, that he has the expertise to comment about it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Does yeah. that make sense? I, I mean, I know how an engine works, but you don't want me working on your car. <laughs> right. So, and that, that made sense to me, Dick. That, that I could understand. Mm -hmm. And so I said, okay, so here's the deal. You told me all the things to expect. So here's what I expect from you. I told him, I said, I am, I'm headlining a show in Las Vegas on September the 10th. It's your job to get me there. Okay, yeah. He laughed, and he said, you got a deal. And six weeks and three days after my final treatment, radiation treatment, I was on stage in Las Vegas doing a show. Wow. Isn't that something? That almost a miraculous story, and the fact that it, we could say that it almost just happened. That was now less than a year ago. Oh, absolutely. I hadn't even... At this time last year, I hadn't even had my first treatment. My first treatment was on June 22nd, 2016. Mm -hmm. My final treatment was July 23rd, 2016. I had 33 proton radiation treatments, three rounds of chemotherapy. So in less than a year, I've gone from tonsillar cancer, neck cancer, et cetera, et cetera, to being uh, on your show cancer-free. That's, that's, that's amazing. Congratulations. That is spectacular. That's, those are the good stories we like to hear. Glad, I'm, I'm glad it happened to you. And since, since then, uh, the uh, National Proton Radiation Treatment uh, Association has asked me to come speak at their, at their national conference because my treatment was so successful, my recovery was so successful, and to try and raise awareness about proton. A lot of people don't know about it. They, you know, they don't, uh, it, it's kind of, uh, it's been around since the 90s. It's not new by any means, but a lot of people don't know about it. And they know about standard radiation, but they don't know about proton. Yeah. And so to anyone listening, if, if you develop a problem, get a second opinion and ask your doctor about what he knows about proton radiation and if by any chance it might be a viable option for you. Yeah. Because I, I will tell you that it absolutely was for me and I... I'm so thankful, so blessed to be around. Not only a miraculous outcome, but I, I'm, I'm listening to your words, get a second opinion, had you not gotten a second opinion, or if you simply had taken the word of the people at Mayo 
and said, okay, uh, I'm okay. I'll go with that. I'll do that. Today, well, maybe today we wouldn't be talking. I doubt we would. I mean, maybe we would, but certainly uh, the conversation would be different. I, I truly believe that. I, I truly believe that had I not done, gone the direction I did, that I would have had the outcome that I've had. I wouldn't still be performing. And, and so our conversation would be different. Yeah. And as I say that, let me also say that my experience at Mayo Clinic, uh, this is no knock on them, my experience at Mayo Clinic was incredible. Terrific people. I mean, you talk about a place that knows what they're doing. Holy smoke. They take excellent care of you. It just so happened that in my case, they did not offer this treatment for my type of cancer. And so, thankfully, I found someone that did. And so far, so good. Yeah. So, so that's my story. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll jump off the soapbox now and we go back and talk about music. Well, you know, um, my next question was going to be, and I, I have a feeling it might even be a bit of an overlapping question. What's been your most challenging experience? Obviously, that was a major one. Is there any other experiences that you can think of in your life that uh, that have been challenging? Absolutely. We're taking away from the health part. The most challenging thing that I've uh, encountered in my career is becoming the lead vocalist of the classics for and taking the spot center stage uh, that was occupied by Dennis Jones for, for so many years. Uh, taking Dennis's place was a huge challenge and, and uh, continues to be one today and every day. Uh, one that I, I, I'm thankful to have the opportunity to do but by all means, I think that's been the most challenging thing for me. Yeah, interesting. And did he ever work with you on stage? Was he well enough to be able to do that? Or The plan was that I would take over front in the group, and, and Dennis would come to shows as his health allowed and uh, maybe come out on stage or maybe stand in the audience and take a bow, whatever the case may be, uh, might be and remain involved as much as possible. He was at, we were able to have Dennis at one show. It was May, May 2007, I think. Mm -hmm. Dennis was there. And so I'm on stage. It's my first time on stage as the lead vocalist of the Classics Four, singing all these great, great records. And sitting right in front of me, literally 10 feet, maybe maybe 15 feet away from me, is Dennis Jost looking up at me, staring at me the whole night. And um, I don't think I've ever been so scared and uh, oh. or intimidated in my life yeah. as I was that night. But um, I, I spoke with his wife, and I said, uh, during the intermission, I said, what do you think about having Dennis? Do you think he wants to come up on stage? And she goes, well, let's ask him. I'm sure he does. So I, I said, hey, Dennis, would you like to come up on stage? And he said, yes. I said, well, not right now. Let's, we'll bring you up after we get the second part of the show started. And so in the audience was also my friend Tony Butella. Yeah, the Letterman. From the Letterman. Yeah. Yeah, right. The Letterman uh, The Letterman had a very nice hit with Traces of Love as well. And so I thought, well, you know, it'd be kind of cool. So, so I brought Dennis up on stage and Tony came up on stage. And the three of us are standing together singing Traces of Love. I, every time I look at that picture and I, 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 I think of it, when we were little kids or, you know, with our grandkids or whatever, there's the round peg into the round hole, and you're learning that. And there was a little song, uh, something like, uh, one of these is not like the other, yes. which one could it be, yeah. blah, 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 blah. Sure, I remember it, yeah. So when I, when I look at that picture, I realize that one of these is not like the other, <laughs> and it's me. Yeah, okay. Uh, I'm standing between two guys with uh, the Letterman, uh, six-time Grammy-nominated, I believe, millions of, of records. Dennis, millions of records sold. Uh, 16 chart records. A lot of people don't know that. They know the four biggies. But uh, 16 chart records. Dennis Jones never released a, a single that didn't chart on Billboard's Hot 100. That's amazing. He had 13 consecutive songs chart on the Hot 100. Wow. So here I stand singing Traces of Love with these two guys. And I, when I look at that picture, and I run across it several times, it's on our website and our Facebook page and various places, you know, it pops up here and there. I keep thinking, wow, I can't believe I survived that night. But what a great memory, and, and unfortunately Dennis's health didn't allow him to be with us too much after that, and then uh, on the night of December the 6th, 2008, his wife called uh, me about 10 o'clock in the evening. I could hear the noises of an emergency room in the background, 
And she told me, she said, Dennis is passing. I'll call you back. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. About 2 o'clock in the morning of uh, December the 7th, she called and she said, hmm. he's gone. Yeah. And uh, uh, it, 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 I, I, it just just so sad. I, that's all I can say. You know? Yeah. Well, and uh, those and and under those kinds of circumstances, I mean, I think all of us have been, even as a visitor in a hospital, the whole world narrows down when you're in those settings. It's like everything else that's going on outside is not even relevant at all. And that's just the way it is. I know I've been there a couple of times myself. Now, I, uh, for some reason, I'm looking at this, and what occurs to me, this, here's, this is coming out of left field. Earlier today, I talked to Sandy Dean of Jay and the Americans, and we're going we're gonna to have him on, I don't know, a couple of weeks. Anyway, he says to me something about, tell Tom Garrett I don't like him. <laughs> So I look at my notes, and I apparently you guys must have had some standing joke or something about one-word titles like uh, traces and spia. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I told yeah, him I yeah, was going to talk to you. Yes, uh, that's that's very true. Sandy's a wonderful guy. Not so much. He's, he's a great guy. He's a great friend. In fact, we're doing a show uh, uh, just a month from now. Uh, we'll be at the Tony Stone Casino in. Uh, Verona, New York, up in New York, upstate New York, near Syracuse, the classic score in Jay and the Americans. Uh, although Sandy would say it's Jay and the Americans in classic score. <laughs> right. um, so here's a story, real quick. Um, uh, back in January, we were on uh, the uh, concerts to see where the action is cruise out in the Caribbean. I MC that cruise every year, and uh, Jay and the Americans were on board. During their show, Jay took a moment, which was very nice, and I appreciate it. And he said to the audience that, uh, you know, any of you who haven't seen the Classics 4 and Tom, Tom Garrett, um, you know, you have to catch them. We've worked with them in the past. We're going to be working with them later this summer, and they're great. And I, I appreciated that very much. Sandy pipes up, and he says, yes, but Tom, we don't like him. <laughs> okay. And he said, and their songs, their songs, <laughs> one-word title. Everything's a one-word title song. Spooky, stormy, traces, <laughs> sleepy, dopey, you know, whatever. So I wanted really bad to turn on my microphone and, so I, and say, now, wait a minute, what about every day with you, girl? Yeah. More than one word. Yeah. But, you know, I didn't. So that's the running joke is that we only have records with one word titles. But they work pretty well given that they've all sold more than a million copies. So I guess the one word thing is probably okay. It's worked out okay. Jane and Americans have Caramia that nobody knows how to pronounce. So what do you do? Is it Caramia? Caramia? You mentioned the cruise. What are you doing now? What What are your plans for the future? Where are you going? Next month, uh, we're up, uh, let's say, at the, the Turning Stone in uh, upstate New York with the uh, and Americans. So then in the middle of July, we'll be uh, in uh, Okaboji, Iowa, hmm. which is, uh, sounds funny, but there's a huge lake resort in, uh, in uh, north-central Iowa. And we're going to be there with uh, my buddy Gary Puckett, Union Gap, and the Ides of March, Jim Peterick, and that's, that'll be a blast. Then we go to Pittsburgh, and then uh, I'm looking forward to we're going to Deadwood, South Dakota. And I'm kind of a Harley guy, and so that's very near the big Sturgis. But uh, Deadwood, South Dakota, and uh, we're going to go out there uh, the end of, of August, do a uh, big car show. They have a big uh, car show out there, I, I understand, draws about... Uh, 12,000 cars. Wow. Uh, so we're very excited about that. And it's a weekend thing. There's a different act each night. So Tommy Rowe is out there on uh, Thursday night. Uh, we're there on Friday night. And the happenings are there on Saturday night. So looking forward to that. Well, you know, what's really neat is there are a lot of groups that are out there now uh, on the road like you guys. I, you know, we're talking 50 years later and it's still happening. And I think it's happening pretty strong. I think it's exciting. For me, it's great because it works out for my show, talking about the 60s. But I think it's great for you, too, that you're able to do that. In the realm of weird things that happen today, uh, and I don't know, you know, you and I could probably talk all night. Uh, your audience might prefer we shut up. <laughs> uh, but in the realm of weird things, today a guy calls me and asks me if we're available on New Year's Eve. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, we are. What's up? 
he said, would you be interested in coming and doing a show on New Year's Eve? And I said, well, tell me about it. Sure, why not? And he said, well, it's in Havana, Cuba. Oh, really? Really. That's exactly what I said. Really. So don't know if it's going to happen. We, we put some stuff, stuff together. We talked about for about an hour about it. He's putting some feelers out. But he's dead serious. He's uh, been taking groups of people, tourists, uh, to Havana now. He's had about six uh, groups that he's taken to uh, Havana. And so he, he wants to do this big New Year's Eve party in Havana. And uh, I met him as a result of being involved in the Proton Association conference in Orlando uh, earlier this year. He said, you know, your story just stuck with me. And he said, I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if Tom and the Classics Four yeah. would be interested in this before I reach out to anybody else. Well, I think that would be so cool to do that. I, I've got visions of the old movies, and I, I'd be willing to bet some of those hotels down there still look like the old movies. Well, I think so, and, I, and, uh, and I'm trying to think of the hotel. Uh, it's the one that was built by the big gangster, and so it's still there, and it's, being, it's been, been rehabbed, and I guess they're still rehabbing it. You back to the as they, he put it, the greatness of it you know, of the earlier days. So if you think about the country of Cuba, you know they stopped getting rock and roll unless they were getting it off of one of the strong stations, one of the clear channel stations, in in 1961. You know that was the end of it. So that might be an incredible market for groups like us. And yeah, it's a neat idea. I hope that it happens. You know what we'll have to do because I know there's. There's more stuff we can talk about, but I will need to get back with you. I'm not sure when, but let's just say maybe in a couple of months and find out if that's been solidified, because that could really be a neat thing to do. And also just to catch up with you again, it's been great just talking today, getting all of your information. So for what we've been able to do today, I've had a ball and you have provided us with a ton of great uh, stories and Let's see if we can reconnect down the road at some point. Well, I, that'd be great. I'd love to do that. And, uh, I, you know, I invite everybody to stop by, check out our website, check us out on Facebook. It's uh, The Classics Four. And, you know, back in the day, you had to be cute about it. So the four, it couldn't just be a four. It's got to be a Roman numeral four. So IV. So The Classics IV on Facebook. Stop by and see us. Uh, make sure you put in the word the in the beginning. And uh, stop by our, pay, our website. Say hi. Tell them you heard. You know, mention that you were listening to the show or you heard the show. I'd love. To, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to uh, speak with everyone today. It's uh, been a great. Been been great, Dick. I appreciate. it. Well, I have to thank you too. And as I said, we will talk at some point in the future, Tom. Thanks again for being on the show today. You take care. Thanks so much. Bye bye. I forgot to mention, while I still had Tom on the line, the Classics Four have a new live album called One Stormy Night Live at the Ritz. Not only was it recorded at the Historic Ritz Theater, but it's also historic because it's the first live Classics Four album. Unchain My Heart, God Bless the USA, It's Not Unusual, and, of course, Stormy, Traces, and Spooky. Check it out. You can get it on Amazon. As some of you probably already know, the America's Oldies But Goodies podcast is now on iTunes, Stitcher.com, and iHeartRadio. And in another couple of weeks, I will have my own app which you'll be able to get through the iTunes App Store and the Google Play Store for Android phones. As Chris mentioned earlier in the show, you need to visit my website, americasoldiesbutgoodies.com, and not only take a listen to the archive of all of our shows, but to check out all of the retro and vintage merchandise available there. For example, we're featuring a John Lennon rare self-caricature, and a Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer signed photo from the 1965 Masters. There's also all kinds of restaurant-quality tiki mugs in various shapes and sizes. So much of the stuff that we remember from the 60s, you'll find it all at America's Oldies But Goodies. You can also email me with your suggestions on what guests you'd like me to have on the show, and I'd love hearing from you with any ideas that you've got. 
So until next week, keep your face in a smile. It makes everything worthwhile. Bye-bye. You've been listening to America's Oldies But Goodies with Dick Scapatoni. If you've got any questions or suggestions, send us an email. The address is dick at americasoldiesbutgoodies.com. Join us again next week for more memories from the good old days. In the words of Jerry Garcia, what a long, strange trip it was. The Swingin' 60s. I'm John Berg. See you then. Bye.